Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Cyril, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. So we continue our walk through the councils. We've seen Jerusalem and in the book of Acts. We've seen Nicaea 325. We saw the first council of Constantinople in 381. And today we're going to see Ephesus, Chalcedon, and time permitting the famous three chapters council. Now, but I have to back up. The councils we're going to deal with now are going to be more specifically about the person of Christ our Lord and his two natures. And it's a difficult concept to wrap one's head around. I mean, for us, of course, we know the catechism and we know the creed. And so, yes, one person, two natures. But I'll tell you what, when I'm teaching this to the seminarians or when myself I'm reading the difficulties and the intricacies of the arguments, I start to think to myself, wow, this is a lot more complex than I thought. So I'll try to keep it simple, all right? And to understand what's going on at the first council we're looking at today, Ephesus, we have to go back to Constantinople and refresh our memories about a specific error that was condemned at Constantinople. One, the era of Apollinaris. It's called Apollinarianism. Now, Apollinaris dies in 390, so he's nowhere near Ephesus, which takes place 41 years later. But what he, and often these heretics, they start with a good insight. I have to say this. And his insight was, no mere creature could bring about the salvation of man. So Christ cannot be merely a man. And he devalued the humanity to the extent, as you'll recall, of saying that although that the divine log logos took on a human body in order to speak to us, he did not take on a human soul. The soul was, in fact, the divine word. So it's kind of a blend in the end, some sort of um, third thing that is the word of God is divine and has a human body only. So that's condemned at Constantinople. And this is where Ray was asking about the writers, very famously, St. Gregory of Nazians, 
says only that which is assumed can be healed. If the divine word did not assume full humanity, then full humanity is not redeemed. He had to have, it had to be a full, whole human nature. So that is kind of the emphasis that is in the air in the 380s, 390s, and early 400s, okay? It had to be true man. And of course, it's true God. And But from there, thinkers are going to start really dividing the two, the human and the, and the divine in Christ. So you're going to have names like Diodor of Tarsus and Theodore of Mopsuestia. Now, Diodor and Theodore are from towns near Antioch, the Patriarchate of Antioch. And Antioch is a school of theology. In the East, there really are two big schools of theology. There's the school of Antioch and the school of Alexandria. And they're going to be different in a number of ways. When it comes to thinking about Christ, they have different emphases. Antioch emphasizes the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ. Whereas in Alexandria, the focus is on the union of the two natures in some way. So that's the distinction between the two cities. In addition to that, there also are different schools of biblical exegesis. Antioch reads the Bible as a literal historical account of what happened for our moral edification. Yeah, these are big brushstrokes, but that's kind of the focus there. While Alexandria tends to take a more allegorical approach to interpreting scripture. Alexandria is where Origen was. And sometimes they go so far as to deny the literal meaning of scripture. Origen did, which is why he's not Saint Origen, by the way. But even other great and saintly uh, uh, exegetes from Alexandria tend in that direction as well. So we have two rival theological schools, shall we say. On top of that, there's the eternal rivalry between Alexandria and Constantinople. All of this is going to play a role in the next two councils we're studying tonight. Now, Diodore was, all these people are anti-Aryan. Diodore against the Arians defended the full divinity of the word. We like that. Against Apollinaris, he defended the full humanity of Jesus, the man. And he says these two natures are not mixed or blended into some sort of third thing. It's not like olive oil and eggs that make mayonnaise. They stay separate, fully divine, fully human. And at one point, someone jumps up and says, Diodor, are you saying that there are two sons, a divine son and a human son? and he does not refute the accusation. So that's just one little point. He was well-respected. Diodor defends the division between the two and is even accused of saying there are two sons and doesn't refute it. But he does say, well, there's the son of David and there's the son of God. That's Diodor. Then Theodore now. He's writing even sooner, actually. He's writing in the 350s although he's going to last until close to the 400s. He's a friend of St. John Chrysostom, okay? These are not two-bit players. He writes many books and things. He follows Diodorus. 
And he's concerned with the problem of there being these two natures in one person. He's trying to understand exactly how this works. Uh, he's anti-Aryan and so forth. And he says, okay, this is how it's got to work. There's God in Christ. There's God with a divine nature and divine properties. But there's also man with a human nature and human properties. But somehow these two present themselves as one. And he uses the Greek word prosopon, which means a mask. It's the word used by actors. You know, actors would wear these masks. In fact, often there'd be only one or two actors playing a multiplicity of roles in the theater in those days. And they would switch out masks, which would let you know who it was. So you can imagine Medusa with, you know, fake snakes all around. And also the, the mouth of the mask was big and it was like, you know, a, an amplifier. That is also what the Latin word persona, person, means. Persona in Latin means sounds through. Okay. Now, the Greeks, though, had two words to mean metaphysically what we think of a person, right? An individual substance of a rational nature. They had prosopon, this mask thing, and they had the word hypostasis, from which we get hypostatic union. And Theodore chose prosopon. So in other words, beside, behind this mask, this presentation of there being one, there are in fact two distinct natures operating each according to its own characteristics. And he goes so far, and I'm going to quote something that Theodore says. And this is important because Theodore, student of Diodore, is going to be the master of Nestorius, who's going to play a big role in the first half of tonight's lecture. This is what Theodore says regarding Our Lady. Mary begat Jesus, but not the Logos, for the Logos has always existed. He is without beginning, although he did dwell in a particular way in Jesus. Therefore, Mary is properly speaking the mother of the Christ and not the mother of God. One can call her mother of God only in a very figurative way, and only because God was in a very special way within Christ. Okay? So that's Theodore up there in the neighborhood of Antioch, and he is the master of Nestorius. Now, Nestorius, we're going to have to talk about him because he's famous for being condemned at the council I'm going to be dealing with here, the Council of Ephesus. He's a monk near Antioch. He's born in 381, so he's born the year of Constantinople, actually. Famous preacher, beloved. And uh, he is elevated to the Patriarchate of Constantinople in 428 by Emperor Theodosius II. The emperors in the East had the privilege of appointing who would be consecrated as Bishop of Constantinople. He's a strong character. At one point, the Pope uh, Celestine at this particular time was uh, persecuting the Pelagian heretics in the West. Pelagians believe you don't need grace to do good. Grace just helps you do the good, but you can do good without grace. And actually, Nestorius wrote to him to be, not to be too hard on them. Of course, he acknowledged they were wrong, but he's someone who steps in and writes to the Pope to recommend a course of action. In the capital, he, caught, he wages war on all the heretics he finds, particularly the lingering Arians, fine. 
But then he starts preaching something that rattles the people. He pushes the distinction of the natures. He says, the word did not suffer during the Passion, and Mary is not the Theotokos. She is not the mother of God, just like his master, Theodore of Mopsuestia. I hasten to add that in many other respects, Theodore was quite orthodox, as we shall see later. But there was just a chapter in his works, Theodore, where he said these things. And Nestorius is going to, as often disciples do, take that and even push it to a further. Theodore had said, there is a way in which you might say that Mary was the mother of God. And Nestorius is going to say, there is no way in which you can say, you see, he pushes it even further. He says, in fact, he says, Theotokos, mother of God, is impious because it reduces the stature of the word. God has no parent. God, well, in the Godhead, there's eternity from, all, from always. So, in other words, to say that a woman gave birth to the word reduces the stature of that word and makes the word inferior to God the Father. So Nestorius, to be devil's advocate here a little a while, is trying to preserve the consubstantiality and co-eternity and full divinity of the Son with the Father. That's what motivates it. I don't think Nestorius in his beliefs was disingenuous. I think he really believed he was right on this. Okay? He says, okay, you can call Jesus, or you can call Our Lady, he even comes up with these names, Anthropotokos, mother of the man. Or if you, but in, when preaching, he would, he would say Christotokos, mother of the Christ. So he's following in Theodore's footsteps. So that is, so the monks and the people in the pews are very rattled by all of this. But Nestorius will not hear reason, and he just goes on teaching this. So there's much reaction to the preaching, and there's a flare-up of interest in this particular question. And everyone, as had been in the, the, in the 370s, uh, one, one theologian at the time, I think it was St. Gregory of Nazianzen, complains that I can't go and buy a loaf of bread without someone talking about consubstantial, consubstantial or homoousios, that iota of difference from last time, remember? Well, here we have it. Well, what do you think Jesus was? Do you think fully man? Yes. Well, then, how do you separate the two? Uh, separate properties? That's what people are talking about while they're getting their shoes shined or getting a cup of coffee downtown Constantinople, okay? A little anachronistic, but you get the idea. Okay. And so someone, and the person who's going to react most vehemently is the patriarch of Alexandria, of course, whose name is Cyril. And Cyril has a very simple syllogism. He says, if our Lord Jesus Christ is God, how can it be that the Holy Virgin who gave birth to him is not the mother of God? It's quite simple. Christ is God. Mary's the mother of Christ. She's the mother of God. But Nestorius won't hear of it. And so it has to be said. So Cyril is going to go on a letter writing campaign. Um, he teaches that Mary is the mother of God in his pastoral letters that he sends around to the priest to preach on. He uses the term Theotokos, and it has to be said that the title of Our Lady Theotokos, although not yet officially promulgated, was particularly popular in Egypt. You may have heard this, I've mentioned this in other lectures, like on the Incarnation, but we have 
the piece of papyrus from the year 250 AD, on which is the prayer, we fly to thy protection, O Holy Mother of God. 250 AD, we actually have the papyrus. It's at the British Museum. You can see it. And there's no way. I mean, the, the likelihood that we happen to have the very first time anyone wrote it down ever is very remote. It's got to be written down from a pre-existing tradition that goes back who knows how far. So in Egypt, she's invoked as Theotokos a lot. And so, the, of course, the Egyptians are very rattled by what the patriarch of Constantinople, who, as you will recall, back in the Council of Constantinople one had tried to insert a canon naming him highest ranking patriarch of the Orient. So the Alexander will. And now this? Now, it has to be said, though, that some of the way in which Cyril proposes the truth, the language itself can be misunderstood because he speaks of the union of the natures in Christ in two ways. He speaks of it as a what we would call a personal union, which means a union in one person. The fancy term is Greek. We say the hypostatical union. But he also calls it a natural union, by which presumably he means a union of natures. But when you say of a union of nature, it's going to sound like you're speaking of a single nature. Okay, so watch out. Cyril does not mean this, but keep that in mind. Put it on the back burner because it's going to come back again. Um, and so he'll speak of a, a union, a natural union, according to the hypostasis, according to the person. So, by the way, he uses the word hypostasis for person, not prosopon. He doesn't use the mask. Use the more metaphysical term, which our dear Saint Athanasius had fought to use in the 360s and until he died in the 370s. So Nestorius says, No, Cyril, you're wrong, I'm right. The two natures of Christ had to be complete for salvation. Saint Gregory of Nazianz taught us that. He had to be true man and true God. His human nature guarantees the integrity of the true incarnation. So again, because against Apollinaris, only that which is assumed is saved. So you had to assume fully man. And the man there is the one who suffered the passion. So for Nestorius, in the creed when it said he suffered and died for us men, suffering and dying cannot apply to God who does not suffer and does not die. So there must be two self-subsisting natures. Well, that's the definition of a person. And so there must be two persons. And that's the mistake of Nestorius. There are two persons. There is a human person and a divine person. For Nestorius, it cannot work otherwise. And, I mean, you can see his point, right? You have to kind of backtrack a bit. Oh, one, one can nearly be convinced by Nestorius. So there is some union. And for him, it is a, un a moral union. There is between the... Uh, the man and the word, the God, such a complete agreement in all things, such complete love that they are thoroughly united, these two persons. And it's a union at the level of the will. They call it a moral union. It is, just to quote a bit from here, 
It is a, a, a willing or voluntary union through the loving union or compenetration of the two in such a way that there is only one juridical personality. So again, as with Theodore, if our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, were to sign, well, there's one signature. Okay, that's the mask, the presentation of the thing. But in fact, there are two persons that are intimately conjoined in him. And so Cyril actually writes to Nestorius, and throughout the whole story, we're going to see Cyril try to tell Nestorius, please change your mind. And Nestorius is going to say, convince me. And Cyril cannot convince him. So in the 430, they write letters to each other. They try to reach an agreement. And Nestorius says, okay, look, Cyril, I agree with you in the division of the two natures, in that they are conjoined in some way. But I cannot believe that the eternal word of God needed a second generation. That's where we disagree. And he says, furthermore, Mary is not Theotokos because God has no mother. Only the man was killed on the cross. And all the other things like the circumcision, the sweat, the hunger, and all these things, those belong only to the human being. And he says, there is no hypostatic union, Cyril. There's just a union of wills. So at this point, Cyril realizes that Nestorius is not budging. So he writes five volumes with the title, The Blasphemies of Nestorius. And he sends money to have his own Cyril sermons translated into Latin and sent to the Pope. This is Pope Celestine, just to make sure the Pope understands what's going on. He also sends a copy of this in Greek to the women of the court, is it called to the queens, and to the emperor. Now, Celestine has received Cyril's sermons. He's also, he also has acquired the works of Nestorius in Latin translation and has a Roman synod convened on the 11th of August of the year 430, which condemns Nestorius for heresy. So in other words, what's happened here is that the Pope has intervened in a Greek squabble and he has condemned Nestorius as being in error. And then, from, from Nestorius's point of view, this is kind of adding insult to injury, he puts Cyril in charge of prosecuting Nestorius. So imagine if a father walks into the bedroom where two kids are fighting over the teddy bear, and you know they're making a ruckus. And the father not only says, Jane, give the teddy bear back to John, and then says, Jane, I'm going to punish you for stealing the teddy bear. And I'm going to ask John to spank you instead of me. Okay, so that's adding insult to injury. You're having the other sibling spank the younger one. So Nestorius at this point is really is, 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 is not is saying no deal. I'm not obeying any of this. So Cyril writes a list of anathemas, 12 anathemas, describe, listing the errors of Nestorius. And he says to Nestorius, the Pope has told me, that you will be deposed and excommunicated if you do not retract your errors. Nestorius says, no way. More letters are written. More people are upset. And the emperor steps in and says, I'm going to convoke a council. And it seems, just judging by the letters that we have, it looks really obvious that Nestorius is the one who turned to the emperor to convoke. He said, Emperor Cyril is causing trouble. The Roman Pope is causing trouble. Your Majesty, do call, call a council and let's settle all of this. That is, a, in a way, Nestorius is backed into a corner, though, because the Pope is against him. 
And so what other authority is there? Well, he goes to the emperor. And so, indeed, a council is called to meet on Pentecost of the following year in 431. In fact, it's going to begin later because there's going to be trouble meeting. Um, but Celestine, who's aware of this, does provide his agreement. He writes to the emperor and he says, okay, this is a good idea, this council. I'm going to send some legates. So that's part of the formal convocation, if you like. Materially, again, called by the, the emperor, but the Pope and Naveen says, yes, good idea, let's do this, and send some legates. Then we have some natural causes that come into play. Uh, the council then meets at Ephesus. Uh, traveling has to be done. Nestorius has to travel by land from Constantinople, while Cyril travels by sea. You would think that sea travel would go more slowly, but it doesn't. It happened to be the case that there was a southerly wind and fair weather coming from Alexandria, while there were heavy rains in and around Constantinople that bogged down Nestorius and caused him to be late. This was a, a, um, very fortunate because Cyril was able to show up and take control of the proceedings right away. Poor Nestorius is going to be late, as are his supporters. In fact, the very first session, Cyril is gunning for this. Uh, 22nd of June is when it actually opens, so a few weeks after Pentecost. Nestorius is deposed and condemned. The 12 anathemas of Cyril are incorporated into the acts of this council. In other words, they go from being merely a theological writing or condemnation of a patriarch to being the words of the council. They're just taken wholesale. Nestorian uh, Christology is condemned as being wrong, and the title Mother of God is formally and solemnly promulgated. And so from that day forth, there can be no doubt that Our Lady is the Mother of God. But that's not the end of the story. And because in this course of lectures, I have really a twofold purpose. Okay, I'm going to reveal everything. Number one, for you to come to know and appreciate Christ better through seeing what the church has said about him and all and how. So that's one purpose. My other purpose is to reassure you of how grubby uh, church politics have always been, all right? <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. And also, though, to see how providence of God is going to work through our fallen nature to bring about great truths to be promulgated. So it's important to look at both. This is not gossip. It's just history. So a moderate supporter of Nestorius, actually the Patriarch of Antioch, shows up four days late, and he sees what happened. So he has a council of his own in which he condemns Cyril and backs Nestorius with some disgruntled bishops who agreed with this way of looking at things. And particularly, they condemn the 12 anathemas of Cyril. The papal legates arrive. They're also late. Two bishops, one priest. They, however, confirm the condemnation of Nestorius. And in the fifth session of Ephesus, they condemn John and his party. So you have two councils going on at the same time. And Cyril now, and Theodosius at this point, he says, well, who's, I don't know who's right. Cyril sees this wavering in the emperor. So he mobilized, he calls in all the favors he has in Constantinople because he had, you know, friends and informers, especially among the monks who generally tend to remain orthodox, to put pressure on the emperor. And he even sends gifts 
to people in Constantinople. So now the church is divided in the East between the Cyrillians, meaning the Orthodox, we would say now, and the what will come to be called the Oriental Party. The Oriental Party is made up of those bishops who agreed with Nestorius, and they tend to come from the East, from Syria and Mesopotamia. And Theodosius at this point, okay, enough of this. He deposes both. Now, this time it's more like the dad who walks in on the squabbling kids and simply knocks their heads together and sends them to bed without supper without trying to investigate who was right and who was wrong. So that's Theodosius this time. Deposes them both. Stop your squabbling. And then he sits down and sighs. And then the monks and the good bishops and the women of the court say, look, your majesty, face the facts Clearly, Cyril is right about this. He's got the Pope. He's got this devotion of the people to the, Our Lady, the Mother of God. And so he relents and reinstates Cyril. Nestorius, though, is sent to a monastery where he will end his days. And in 433, Cyril and John of Antioch will actually be reconciled. Uh, John had a few questions, which Cyril answered, on the full humanity of Christ, which Cyril, of course, admits. And John grants the dangers of dividing the natures too starkly. And John of Antioch acknowledges that Nestorius was justly condemned. And in this uh, reconciliation between Antioch and Alexandria, which was a big deal. I mean, if you were to read that in the newspapers, those two are reconciling. Because there are so many other differences besides this specific thing with Nestorius, people with exegesis and all these differences. But the person who's brokering all of this is a young archdeacon who came over from Rome. And this archdeacon has a great devotion to Our Lady. In fact, the new pope, Sixtus, is going to ask this young man to oversee the building of the great church de dedicated to Mary in Rome, Santa Maria Maggiore. And this archdeacon's name is Leo, future Leo the Great. So you can kind of keep him there. And Leo, who would in fact be Pope later on, soon, in fact, from the year 440 to the year 461. And he has a very keen theological mind that is able to reconcile the division of natures and yet the singularity of person. So the council is over, and Pope Sixtus III, he's the one who puts the young Leo in charge of building Santa Maria Maggiore, as it then was, approves the decrees of this council in 432, nearly immediately after becoming Pope. And that's the story of Ephesus. And if you want to read more, you can read about the anathematisms and so forth. You can read these texts um, in the appropriate books. I can give a short bibliography if you'd like. There's a wonderful book on all the councils of the church. It's in two volumes, and it's by Alberigo and Tanner. I'll give the reference, perhaps, to be added to the notes for this lecture. And what's wonderful about it is that I think I've mentioned it to you. Here's a, I photocopied just a few chapters I needed. So here's Ephesus, for example. Here's the Greek and the Latin, and here's the English, and here's all the acts, all that was said and everything. Now, it's not complete. If you want to get 
into the complete story of all these ecumenical councils and others, then you have to go into the massive collections that span bookcase upon bookcase. The old one was called Mansi, which is available online, then there's Heffel and Leclerc. And there you can see, and I'm just going to add this, regarding the Council of Ephesus, the legates from Rome gave speeches which we happen to have. And in one of these speeches, one of them goes in great detail about the papal prerogatives. And I'll just add that. Now, those did not make it into the official acts because they were not uh, openly approved or promulgated. But let me just read that to you, just so you can hear some of the things that were said at this council. There is no doubt for anyone, or rather, it is a fact that has been known for centuries that the holy and blessed Peter, the prince and chief of the apostles, the pillar of faith, the foundation of the Catholic Church, received from our Lord Jesus Christ, Savior and Redeemer of the human race, the keys of the kingdom, and that to him was given the power to loose and to bind. And it is he who, all the way until the present time and forever, lives and just and judges in his successors. So I add that. This is not part of the official canons of this, of this council or anything. Okay. But it is something that was uttered in public in front of all these Greeks in Greek, and there is no record of any disagreement from anyone's part. So I just add that in to let you know that there's more to a council than merely the official acts, and also what people say and so forth and so on. All right, so I wanted to add that. Now, remember the principle I outlined to you last time, namely that when a great dogmatic truth is promulgated, there are two victories. There's the victory of the truth, and the victory of the faction that was promoting that truth from just sociology here, sociology here. And also often the people of that faction or the people allied to that faction, the people cheering on that faction, often deem that all of their other agendas have been endorsed by the council, or at least they certainly are going to be tempted to present it that way to the folks back home. And this happens with Ephesus. A lot of the people are going to go home and say, you see, there's one. And this is what's going to happen in the 40s, the 440s. By 446, the principal actors of Ephesus are dead, since Cyril is dead, Nestorius is dead. Leo, however, is going to be made pope here in a couple of years in Rome. Uh, now, Leo is going to be a busy man. As you know, he's the one who spoke to Attila the Hun to keep him from sacking Rome, which worked okay. It's that great man, Leo. But let's turn our gaze back to the East. We have a man by the name of Eutyches. Now, Eutyches is an Archimandrite. It's a monastic title, but it's equivalent to Monsignor. In other words, he's kind of a player. He's in Constantinople this time. Uh, he had been a fierce opponent of Nestorius back in the day. So in other words, he was pro-Cyril all the way. Uh, he's born in 378, and he will die in 454. Those are the basic dates. Okay. And uh, he attacked Nestorius, and he also attacks those who claim that there are two natures after the union of God and man. He says, after the union of divinity and humanity, there are no longer two natures. There is one, 
And as we saw, he could use some sentences of Cyril to claim this. Now, the new patriarch of Constantinople, by the way, I'm not going to make it to the third council for today. That's fine. We'll just deal with it next week. It's kind of a detailed thing anyway. Now, the patriarch of Constantinople at this time is a man by the Roman-sounding name of Flavian. Now, Flavian is a good and decent man, I think. Uh, he made some enemies in the court at Constantinople, including a certain eunuch whose name was Chrysaphius. Now, you, at this time, okay, the court of Constantinople has adopted certain customs of Oriental courts, such as Persia and elsewhere. And one of these customs was to hire eunuchs to administer the government. And there could be several reasons for this, but one of the reasons was so that they, were, they didn't have any heirs to make uh, nest eggs for by, through corruption. Okay, that was the idea. Now this, but the eunuchs tended to be very wily, very political. And this eunuch, Chrysaphus, had brokered the elevation of Flavian to the patriarchate in the hopes of getting a recompense in gold. And Flavian said, Chrysaphus, you eunuch, I never asked for your help. Thank you for helping, but I never promised anything. You're not getting any gold. And this, as it happens, eunuch was the godson of Eutyches. Okay, so there's a political angle, more of that coming. So Flavian condemns Eutyches as being an, an Apollinarian. Remember the no human soul, but the Logos takes over the human soul. So Eutyches appeals. He appeals to Leo. Doesn't get anywhere yet. And he appeals, you guessed it, to the Patriarch of Alexandria, who is, because there's still this rivalry. And if you're in trouble with Constantinople, well, you turn to Alexandria. And down in Alexandria, we have another patriarch by the name of Dioscorus, who seems to have been a man who was, I mean, in agreement with Ephesus, fine, uh, one person only. He doesn't seem himself to have been too committed theologically one way or the other regarding this one nature business, but he certainly was committed to uh, reasserting the primacy of Alexandria over the Oriental patriarchates against the ambitions of Constantinople. So Dioscorus, the patriarch of Alexandria, sees his opportunity to bring down Flavian, the patriarch of Constantinople, by a peg or two. So you see what I mean? And the accusation is this. Among the things that Ephesus had said was, one cannot add another statement to the Creed of Nicaea. Okay? And Dioscorus says, well, Flavian, you're adding another statement. You're adding the statement that there is, that, that uh, there are, there's, there's two natures, not one. Now, this is disingenuous, because if you look at, the, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but the Greek doesn't say, unfortunately, the Latin gets it wrong, I think, but the authoritative Greek says not another creed. It says a different creed, heteranpistin. So in other words, the text says you cannot add a different statement or a different faith 
to the Creed of Nicaea, which leaves room to inserting a harmonious statement, you see, but they're using it the other way. I could go into that more, but just for the time being, that's the argument. So Theodosius, him again, said, okay, we have to settle this. I call a council. And he calls a council, and he already had uh, you know, the name of the caterer in Ephesus, so to speak. So he says, let's have another one in Ephesus. So there's a second council of Ephesus. But if you look at the list of councils, you'll see there's no Ephesus too. Why? Because this council is no council. In fact, it's going to go sideways very quickly. He invites Leo. Theodosius does. So things start well. Leo smells a rat. He says, I don't think we should have another council about this. It's in what? It's been 20 years. But the emperor insists. So Leo says, OK, I'm going to send a couple of representatives. And I'm going to send my representatives with a letter to Flavian outlining the truth, the, the faith of Rome when it comes to this. And this letter, in fact, comes to have a name of its own. I mean, famously, it's the letter to Flavian. But the name it's been given, it was given then and is used today, is the Tome of Leo. And it is a foundational document in Christology. It is a document that Leo, a fine theologian, as I mentioned, writes to Flavia. And it's famous for attacking the formula that there's only one nature after the union. It firmly defends the distinction between the two natures. And it attacks Eutyches for these two errors. But also, Eutyches was reluctant to say that the body of Christ was of the same substance as ours. Because for him, since there was a blend of two natures, what you had was a different thing that was superior to humanity. So his flesh was not quite our flesh. It was a divine flesh of sorts. Do you see? So this council meets in Ephesus in 449. Dioscorus of Alexandria puts himself in charge. The delegates of the Pope complain that this is going too far, too fast, because it's all going in the direction of Eutyches. Now, remember, what is the principal mistake of Eutyches? It is the belief that there is only one nature in Christ that is made of a kind of blend of the two. And there's a name for this mistake. It is called monophysitism. And those who hold this belief are monophysites. What is it? Mono means one, monorail. And physis is the Greek word for nature. Monophysis, one nature, mono, if you use mono as a prefix, monophysitism, the beliefs in one nature. And so this is the error of, of Eutyches. So for whatever reason, we call the error of Nestorius Nestorianism, but we call the error of Eutyches by its descriptive name, monophysitism. And this pseudo-council rehabilitates Eutyches and condemns Flavian, the patriarch of Constantinople. They put him in jail, and he dies there. Not, however, without having first sent an appeal to the Pope. This council, this pseudo-council, it's going to get a nickname in a minute, of Ephesus, not the real one, this fake one, 449, this one, accuses Flavian of being a Nestorian. You can see why, right? When you're at one extreme, everyone on the other, in the middle looks like the other side. It deposes everyone who agreed with Flavian. They ignore the Tome of Leo. And in fact, they're going to 
be very rude to the papal delegates. They don't allow them to preside, whereas they had presided at the real Council of Ephesus. And they won't even allow him to read out Leo's tome. And Dioscorus, and this is where get, things get uh, a bit kind of soap opera-like. Dioscorus, the patriarch of Alexandria, who is now pushing monophysitism because it suits his political ambitions, picks one of his own priests to be the new patriarch of Constantinople. His name is Anatolius. And clearly, he's intended merely to be a puppet of the Patriarch of Alexandria. So to back up, the pro-monophysite Patriarch of Alexandria, who saw an opportunity in this era of Eutyches, has managed to get rid of the Patriarch of, of Constantinople, Flavian, he's out, he's dead, and to put one of his own priests in his stead. Anatolius then, the new Patriarch of Constantinople, is what we call a creature. He is the creature of Dioscorus. He was created by him. So look, things look pretty dire. However, three factors are going to turn this thing around. Number one, Pope Leo is not having any of this, and he calls this pseudo-council, this councilable, he calls it a latrocinium, which is Latin for a a, a, a den of thieves or a brigandage. And for that reason, in English, we call this council the robber's council because it stole the prerogatives of a true council and it even stole the name of Ephesus. So that's the first factor. Second factor, the eunuch. Remember him? He's influential at court. He's the godson of Eutyches, but he's going to lose influence because he makes a fundamental mistake. He snubbed the empress in some way. And the empress, by the way, she's not the wife of Theodosius II. She's his elder sister. In fact, when Theodosius II was a little boy and had inherited the throne, she was the regent. She's that kind of woman. She, she had herself ruled in her kid brother's Stead, and he admired her madly. And Palkyria is one, as she's not the last one, is one of the imperial ladies to remain orthodox. And she, in fact, had an alliance with Leo. Third factor, this is the juiciest one from a soap opera point of view. Anatolius, the creature of Dioscorus, he sees himself sitting in that throne in Constantinople in Hagia Sophia. He's wearing the mantle and all the accoutrements of the Patriarch of Constantinople. And he says, this is pretty good. I like this. And I don't like Dioscorus thinking he's the boss of me. So he, too, forms an alliance with Leo in Rome. So as you can see, things are not going so well. Whereupon an unexpected event takes place. In 450, Theodosius II falls off his horse and dies. He's succeeded to by Marcian, but Palkyria, again, is kind of calling the shots. And among the first things she does once Theodosius II is dead, poor lad, is that she has Chrysaphius the eunuch executed. She has Eutyches exiled. This is all political stuff. And a council is summoned for October of 451 at the church of St. Euphemia in Chalcedon. 
now that reminds me, by the way, the church at Ephesus was the church of Our Lady, as it happens. So she, I think she watched over the proceedings. 600 people attend this, including five papal legates. The, Leo is not going to send two or three, five. Um, and they preside, the papal legates preside. There's an imperial uh, commissioner to kind of organize things. A couple of African bishops come because they, their country's been invaded by vandals. Well, which reminds me, going back to Ephesus, okay, 430, St. Augustine was invited to Ephesus in 430. And he was the bishop of a tiny little diocese, but he was so well known. Unfortunately, he died as the vandals were besieging his uh, cathedral city of Hippo. But this time at Calcedon, we have a couple of North Africans, Latin speaking. Uh, they're there as well. And Anatolius of Constantinople presides. Pulcheria runs the catering and the police. They reverse the decisions of the robber council. Dioscorus of, of Alexandria, deposed, exiled. And in a very dramatic scene, as you know, theologians on either side are discussing things, and not surprisingly, the Monophysites are presenting the Latrocinium of Ephesus, this robber council, as being ecumenical. And they say, how can you go against an ecumenical council? But so there's a debate, and during there are many sessions and you know, lots of shouting and gesticulating. But this exciting scene. The Patriarch of Jerusalem, his name was Juvenal. He, during the proceedings, stood up and walked from the Monophysite side to the Orthodox side of the, uh, the assembly to manifest that he was convinced that the Orthodox, those who believe in two natures subsisting in one person, were right. And he kept his see as a result. Now, very wisely, because they knew how these things go, the council fathers here made a big show of condemning Nestorius again, just to close that loophole, you see, just to make sure that we don't pendulum-wise go from one side to the other. And Leo's tome, which is read and approved, is declared orthodox, is included in the proceedings. They're right here in the text. We have it. And spontaneously, the crowd of all these very, their great majority, Eastern bishops, shout out, Peter has spoken through Leo. What are the results? Chalcedon pronounces Christ to be perfect God and perfect man, consubstantial with the Father in his divinity, and consubstantial with us in his humanity. These two natures exist without confusion, without separation. In fact, Leo's tome, which is part of the proceedings and included in there saying the truth, says he is one person in two natures. This is to avoid going Nestorian. And by the way, that particular uh, uh, phrase of St. Leo's, one person in two natures, is a phrase he got straight out of St. Augustine. So the difference between the two natures is not abolished. The properties of each nature remain intact, but they form only one person. Also, this council rehabilitates a couple of men who had been accused of Nestorianism, Theodoret and Iabas, whose names will recur. So 
the upshot of it is that there is one person and two natures. Well, how does this work? As I said in my lecture on the incarnation, which some of you may have seen, the person is a divine person. There's only one. He's a divine person in two natures. Of course, he has a divine nature, but he also has, and this is the miracle, a human nature. So that when you see him, what you see is a human, I mean, you know, the, the light reflecting off him that strikes you is reflecting off a human body. And he has a human soul. He has everything a man has, but he is one and he is a divine person in two natures. So does he suffer? Yes. On the cross, this one person suffers, but he suffers in his human nature. He does not suffer in his divine nature because the divine nature by, by definition cannot suffer. He, that one per that divine person, suffers in his human, human nature. That divine person uh, performs miracles in his divine nature, but it's one person, it's him. There's a he there and there's one he, Jesus Christ, son of God, son of Mary. And so Our Lady is the mother of God because she's mother of that person who is a divine person. So that's preserved. But there's more. There are many disciplinary canons that follow upon that, including, and this is one, the canon that is going, again, I have to mention this. So if I go through the canons of Chalcedon, uh, and I'll read a few of them, if you like, just, just the short ones, um, so you can see how disciplined they can be. Canon 24. Monasteries once consecrated in accordance with the will of the bishop are to remain monasteries in perpetuity, and the effects which belong to them are reserved to the monastery, and they must not be turned into secular inns. Those who allow this to happen are to be subject to the canonical penalties. Okay, so there had been a problem with monasteries being so hospitable that they kind of become inns, and that's it. Okay, so that's workaday disciplinary stuff. But, but, Canon 28 is the one that always comes up when discussing the Council of Chalcedon. So I'll read that one to you. And once again, you'll see what they're up to. Following, it's very sonorous, following in every way the decrees of the Holy Fathers and recognizing the canon which has recently been read out, the canon of the 150 most devout bishops who assembled in the time of the great Theodosius of pious memory. So what are they talking about? The Council of the 150 is Constantinople I. By the way, this is good to know for you when you're reading about the councils. They tend to call the councils by the number of those who attended. So half the time when they speak of the Council of Nicaea, they don't say the Council of Nicaea. They say the Council of the 318. And then they might add some historical information. Constantinople I is the Council of the 150, under the great Theodosius, the very one who proclaimed, by the way, Catholicism, the religion of empire. Let me continue. Of the great Theodosius of pious memory, then emperor in imperial Constantinople, comma, New Rome. Aha, you see where this is going. We issue the same decree and resolution concerning the prerogatives of the most holy church of the same Constantinople. New, it's like Rome, it's like a litany. The fathers rightly accorded prerogatives to the see of older Rome, since that is an imperial city. And moved by the same purpose, the 150 most devout bishops 
apportioned equal prerogatives to the most holy see of New Rome. In other words, once again, so what they're referring to is canon number three of Constantinople one, and now it's canon 28 of Chalcedon. They're trying to give Constantinople the top position after Rome. And once again, and by the way, again, that council was elaborated after the Roman legates were safely on the boat going home. And that is why Leo the Great is going to wait until the year 454 before he ratifies this council. But he excludes Canon 28. And the difficulty with this, my dear friends, is this. Now, of course, Leo had to wait. He had to. Okay. But that means that from 451 until 454, you had three years during which the Monophysites could say, but the Rome hasn't, but Rome hasn't ratified it. The Pope hasn't ratified it. Do you see? And that those crucial three odd years, maybe nearly four years, allow the Monophysites to prey on the hesitation of bishops who might say, well, it's right. Yeah, Leo didn't ratify this to consolidate and organize themselves. And that is the reason why to this day we still have Monophysite churches out in the Orient. And they're the ones who brought the faith to China early on. When Marco Polo goes to China, he finds remnants of Monophysites out there because of that delay by the Pope. And that's not the last time. And those of you who lived through Vatican II and the aftermath may remember a similar event with respect to the contraceptive pill where the Pope, in 64, 65, when it was discussed at the council, the Pope said, I reserve the issue to myself. And we had to wait four years until Humanae Vitae. And during that time, people could say, well, the Pope hasn't condemned it. You see, it's the same thing repeating itself. It's a delay, sometimes forced by events. Sometimes it just can't be helped. But there's always someone who's there. They say time is money. Time is also orthodoxy. And that's as far as I'll go tonight, my dear friends. So those are the two big councils of the fifth century, among the most important. Thank you for your attention and your patience. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Pepino. You're welcome. Dr. Pepino, are you ready for some Q&A? Well, I'm, I'm here for them. I, I hope I can answer properly. Well, I'd like to ask just a procedural question first. So how does this all work? Do do the council fathers, do they like vote? Is it by majority rule? I mean, how do they come to the, the uh, conclusions that they do? That's a very good question. And we don't always know exactly how they reach their conclusion. I mean, they have to sign. So we so there will be their signatures. And this is classic of all. I mean, we don't always have the lists. But they do tend to sign, and they tend to sign by order of um, seniority as bishops. So when we do have lists signing councils, you can see who's been bishop longest. I mean, except for certain prerogatives, okay, the presiders or whatever, the patriarchs. But then it's all done by prerogative. And so they vote by signing. But presumably it's it's by, you know, the eyes and nays have it. And then they sign. Um, I don't think there were any other kinds of ballots. So we, I don't think we know the answer specifically as to whether they, you know, black and white balls or whatever. But the signatures, yes, they would sign it. And when they promulgate things, they say, we, the assembled, whatever number, 150, 318, zero bishops, unanimously proclaim, and then you have all the things coming down the line. 
So they do say unanimous. They tend to do that. Yeah, they, they don't get left out. Okay. Um, so. All right. We got a question here from Kathleen, Dr. Pepino, who writes, yes. um, with all the political positioning and human manipulation of uh, events and people that you've yes. been talking about, yeah. um, how do we know that the final outcomes are these ultimate decisions, uh, these ultimate decisions that they make were actually sanctioned by God? Oh, yes. That's a very good question. And I would even add it. How do we know? To what extent? I mean, is it everything? Do all these canons, or is that God speaking from on high? Monasteries cannot be hostels. No, it's only when they decree and define as councils, and it's ratified by the Pope, that it's in. Now, how do we know that, by the way? Well, we know that because that is how the church ultimately has received it and always understood it. And that's how it is. So ultimately, that we have to acknowledge, okay, that's, that's where the church is speaking when they do that. But besides that, they're people. And it, yeah, it's awful. And in fact, they knew it. Again, St. Gregory of Nazianzen once said, and this was repeated by Benedict XVI, besides those dogmatic formulations where the Holy Ghost preserves us from error, everything else is politicking, is powder in the eyes and smoke and mirrors. And so, I mean, there are holy men there, okay. And then there are there's all this stuff that's jockeying because it's human nature. I mean, these people, most of them are just like you and me, really. And I certainly know that uh, my intentions are not always very pure when I do things. And sometimes I myself don't know how, how, my, how well informed my decision is by uh, uh, doing God's will or doing my will and thinking it's God's will or simply being vindictive and nasty, you know, as, as one is. So, but ultimately it's because it's received by the church. And if you look at the whole arc of councils, you do see a thread. I mean, it's the same faith, you can tell. There's no reversing of doctrinal things. If it were merely jockeying, they would end up denying what has been promulgated by a former council, and yet they never do. So there is that thread, and it's a bit like in, uh, well, you know, like in the spiritual life or in your lives and the people you know, or as um, Evelyn Wall, I think, described it well in Brideshead Revisited, there's this thread that goes through, throughout. And it's always there from the Council of Jerusalem all the way to Vatican II. You can see this thread. There's just this something there that keeps them from saying something completely wrong, <laughs> doctrinally or morally. And maybe, I'll tell you what, regarding contraception of Vatican II, I think it was divine providence that kept those bishops from voting on it, because who knows which way it would have gone. I can say, having read the speeches given the aula, which will turn you a fair white, by the way, if you read some of the speeches, there's some well-known bishops, I mean, they may be black and white and grainy and have stiff collars up to their chins, they could still say some pretty crazy stuff. And it may be right that the Pope withdrew that question to himself and said, exactly the right thing. We had to wait three years. So three years, unfortunately, was a time of testing. Same thing with Leo I, waiting till 454 to ratify the council, because they said they inserted through political jockeying that stupid canon number 28. Well, as you say, time is orthodoxy. Yeah, I, I came up with that off the on the fly, but I think it's something I'm going to meditate on a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really like it. I really like it. Okay. Um, Jerry asks, well, first of all, the which of the count councils um, came out with creeds at the end? And what is the difference between the creed? 
Ah, very good question. Now, creeds had always existed, and it seems that the origin of the creed is uh, as a statement of faith for those receiving Christian instruction to memorize and recite. And if you look at the works of the fathers of the church during the earlier period to this, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Tertullian and uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon um, and many others, at some point, and the apologists, when they're writing to the pagan empress to explain what they believe, at some point they go, by the way, this is what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Well, they say, this is what the church believes. The church believes in, and there'll be, there were many, many different kinds of creeds, and that provided a, uh, a template for Nicaea to say, okay, we need to, what is it that we want our catechumens to know? And they forge it. And it seems at Constantinople, although we don't have the paperwork for it, they also did something like it. Or they adopted, this is some scholars argue this, they adopted a pre-existing creed in who knows Alexandria, Antioch, or Jerusalem, which said that. Uh, then, as I mentioned, Ephesus said, you cannot make a statement of faith different to that of Nicaea. Then Chalcedon says, we believe in the creed promulgated by Constantinople I, and that's the first time we hear of it, and that's the one we recite at Mass today. But if you look in it, they do have statements of faith in these councils that begin with, we believe. And by the way, but they'll be more specific. So Council and Ephesus is more, we believe, and they hone in on the specific issue they're dealing with. And last thing about the we believe thing, because there may be amongst you some people who, like me, attend the uh, older rites of the Latin liturgy. Now, in the older rite of the Latin liturgy, we say it's credo, right? I believe. In the new... In the English translation that some of you and I grew up with, it was we believe for a while. And I think now it's back to I believe, isn't it? In the new it mass? Is. I see people yes, nodding. Okay, yeah. all right. Now, the Latin was always credo, I believe. But the creed at Nicaea, it must be said, did have in the Greek, which is the authoritative language there, pistevo men, we believe. Why the difference? It, the difference is this. The Latin creed is simply using the normal formula that had always been used for all the creeds. It's someone just before being baptized is asked, what do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father, etc. So it's credo. Whereas the creed of Nicaea was a statement put together by the 318, and they made sure to say, this is what we believe, to reflect that unanimity I was speaking of earlier. And for that reason, in Greek, they tend to use that version. It's not a big issue, uh, but it's, it explains the difference between why we went from I believe to we believe and back again in, uh, in the English version of uh, the Latin liturgy. Okay. Why, why do we pray it at Mass? Oh, that's a long story. Uh, in the West, do you know it did not go into the Mass in the West until the second millennium, until the 1100s. It began in Spain uh, with a filioque, I think. No, and then, yeah, Charlemagne wanted it said in his palace at the end of mass to make sure everyone had the same faith because that was his bailiwick. And then ultimate, and so then it found its way into the Frankish liturgical books. 
And then during the Gregorian reform of Gregory VII in the 11th century, the Holy Roman Emperor, meaning the King of Germany, was surprised that the, the Roman liturgy at Rome didn't have the creed and the Pope put it in. So we didn't always have it. And it's gone on, gone in and out of favor. So it took a while to get into the official mass of Rome anyway. And it used to be said more often at mass than it is today. It used to be said on the feasts of doctors of the church, not surprising, doctors of the church, they teach the faith, until 19, I think it's either 56 or 60, and they got rid of it for that feast. So th those of you who follow the 1962 missal, you don't have the creed for those feasts. But if your priest says the older one before that, you do have it. And in the Novus Ordo, I think it's only on Sundays and feast days. I don't think it's ever said during the week. So it comes and it depends. It's, it's one of those historical things, Annie. Um, it seems that we say it when we need to say it. And uh, we need it more than ever, so say it. <laughs> Let's uh, close out on this. I mean, we've had a lot of questions, but um, and yeah. I apologize just in the interest of time. We'll close so out on this because yeah. a lot of people are asking for for book recommendations. Oh, yes. Further reading. Could you uh, could you close us with uh, with those recommendations? Yes. Now, if you really I recommend this, OK, you're all well read and intelligent people. If you want to get into the reality and truth of things. Don't rely so much on historians as on the actual documents of history. And as I mentioned earlier, I mentioned it again today, for the, the ecumenical councils, it's a two-volume work published, I believe, by Ignatius called The Ecumenical Councils. And the it, it was originally, in fact, that book was originally put together for the bishops attending Vatican II so that they'd have all the documents from the former councils before them. And then after Vatican II, they put Vatican II in to complete it. And the authors there, the Italian editor, was, of course, made in Italy, was Alberigo, who's the head of the Bologna School of the History of Vatican II, with which I don't agree in every respect, but this was a favor he did us. And it was put into English by a Jesuit father, Tanner, T-A-N-N-E-R. And if you really want to have the reference book on, the, on all the councils, from Nicaea to Vatican II, you might have to cough up a, a slightly bigger sum, but you'll have it there on your shelf and you'll be able to consult it and see not only the English translation, which is on the left-hand page, but if you know a little bit of Latin or Greek or sometimes Armenian even, depending on who, who's attending that council, you can check the original. That would be my go-to. Otherwise, there's any number of short pocket books you can use, but I, I've discovered this. Oh, here's another one. It may be out of print. There's another good one. It's all it's pre-Vatican II, but it's written by the great authority on councils. His name was Hubert Yedin, J-E-D-I-N. It's a tiny little book that summarizes each of the councils very well up to Vatican I. Now, the same Hubert Yedin wrote a massive history of Trent, because that was his specialty, but then we're getting into the weeds. So Tanner for all the actual documents of all the councils. Yedin, for a small book that gives you the basics, and he's very fair, but he doesn't have Vatican I, uh, II, I mean, because that was um, before Vatican II. And as for histories of Vatican II, I read a lot of them, and I have yet to find one that is not polemical or partisan. I'm sorry. I guess we're just too close. Dr. Papino, would you mind closing us in prayer tonight? Oh, that's right. Certainly. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I mean, 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and forever, world without end. Amen. God bless you all. God bless us all. And keep up hope, faith, and uh, most of all, charity. All right? Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.